So if you just take a second and pray with me, uh, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you. And God, I, I think of the president. I pray for a special grace and mercy upon his life. I pray that you protect him, his physical health, his mental faculties and, and thinking and reasoning, and uh, that you would just guide him and direct him. Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety and their protection and their salvation because so many of those guys, they don't know you. And Lord, we think of, uh, we think of the persecuted church. Lee Sherabu, Pastor Yusuf, Pastor John, Pastor Wang, Lord, the Christians in North Korea and Afghanistan, Somalia, Eritrea, Nigeria, the South Sudan, some of the hardest places in the world to be a Christian. And we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Please, God, help them. And help us today. Help me, Lord, and keep me from error. Help me to say what you want me to say. And if there's something you don't want me to say, don't let me say it. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit. I pray you'd free us from distraction. I pray you'd free us from anxiety. I pray you'd free us from whatever competing thoughts right now that we're dealing with. And Lord, we just hear from you, God. We want to hear from you. So I pray that we would. I pray that you would help us. In your name we pray. Amen. We are in the Gospel according to John. This is part three of our journey through John's Gospel. Uh, I've said it before, chapter one is very dense, so we are going very slowly through chapter one. I, I do believe it will pick up, but uh, for now, we're going to keep on cruising. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's known as the synoptic Gospels. That comes from the Greek word, which means to see together. Uh, it's for that reason. If you've ever been reading in the Gospels, and you're like, hey, I think I read that story in Matthew that I read in Mark. Well, there's a reason for that. John's Gospel is very unique. In fact, 90% of the material in John's Gospel is found only in John's Gospel. And you'll also notice that John pays particular attention as he's writing primarily to a Greek audience. And so when it comes to geography, he usually expa explains Palestinian geography. When it comes to uh, translating terms from Aramaic into Greek, he, he draws attention to that, really trying to give aid to that particular group of individuals. And he kicked off this whole story really with Jesus' origin. In verse 1, chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And, and of course, his origin is that there is no origin, that he has always been. He's always existed. He is the self-existent one. And at the end of the day, be of good cheer, because Jesus wins. The light wins. The darkness cannot prevail. It will not prevail. And uh, we worked all the way up to verse 13 last week. And ultimately, one takeaway from last week's sermon building upon this week, is that you don't do anything. You, you, as Edwards would say, you contribute nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And so, that's my introduction. Now you're caught to speed. Chapter 1, verse 14. Let's do it to it, guys. Verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
There is so much in verse 14, uh, starting with the Word. The Word became flesh, that is Christ. And we already discussed that uh, in the first sermon in John's Gospel. But it is Christ that he's referring to. That's what the Word is referring to. It's referring to Christ. He's saying Christ has come to dwell among us. John's saying that emphatically, that the Creator of the universe has now entered His creation. That's what he means here in verse 14. But the other major idea behind verse 14, saying that the Word became flesh is an affirmation of Jesus's full humanity. And, and that might seem pretty basic in our modern church era to not really have to think twice about whether Jesus was a real life human being, but that really hasn't always been the case. In fact, some individuals found the incarnation so utterly beyond comprehension, they just refused to accept it. And in their attempt to try to rationalize or explain it away, they begin teaching heresy, and we know them by the name of the doisetists, and that comes from the Greek word to, to seem or to appear, these doisetists, and that will be part of their central argument, that Jesus only seemed to be human. He only appeared to be human. But, you know, keep in mind within Greek culture and thinking, it was commonly accepted, this idea of dualism. And when I say dualism, the thinking is like this, matter and spirit. That's the Greek dualism that is before us. And John's certainly taking a shot at this. And that was a very prevalent Greek philosophy at this time. And in short, matter, matter's bad. Matter is evil. Spirit, spirit's good. We like spirit. That's what the Doisetists would have said. And so the argument was like this, that Christ could not have had a material body because anything material is bad and evil. And so they taught that his body was a phantom, an apparition, or that the divine Christ spirit descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism, then left him before his crucifixion. So he, he only really seemed to be human. But that's, that's not what John says. Not at all. He emphatically states that the word became flesh. He was fully human. Fully human. And, and he dwelt among us. And what's interesting about that word dwelt in verse 14, that word dwelt, it's, it's the same word that means to set up a tent. Very tabernacle type language right here in the Greek, which has caused some to think by implication that if we're talking about setting up a tent, tents are temporary things, and well, maybe, maybe there is some additional meaning in that. And from that, many commentators have drawn further inferences that really take us away from what I think John is trying to communicate. For example, you go to Revelation 21.3, we'll throw it up on the screen, where there the, the, the new heavens and new earth are described. And here's what it says. It says, Behold, the dwelling place, literally the tent, of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. Literally pitch his tent, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And the big idea isn't a temporary hangout, just because he's using the word tent, but rather the focus of this dwelling is that it's among men. That is, in doing this, God wants to be close to us. He wants to be close to us. That's the point. He wants to be familiar with us. He wants to have a lot of interaction with us. And this is the illustration Piper gave. I thought it was really helpful. If you were to move into a neighborhood, for example, you move into a neighborhood, you move into a community, 
and you build a house, and the very first thing you do after you build a house, you put up a big, giant wall around your property, that is going to communicate a few things about your desire to want to be around people, to want to be with people. But if you set up a tent in my backyard, you'll probably have to come in and use my bathroom, my shower, my Wi-Fi, my stove, my microwave, my fridge, my refrigerator to store food in. I mean, you'll probably be coming inside regularly. This is what John's getting after in verse 14. This is why God became human to dwell among us. He came to pitch a tent in our backyard, you might say, so that we would have lots of interactions with him, so that we would be close to him. And not only does he desire those interactions, but he needed to come, as verse 14 says, and dwell among us, because according to Hebrews chapter 2, Verses 14 and 15, this is what we're told. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of that same things. The same things. Just as verse 14 says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. It is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think probably this, the scariest thing that we could experience in this life would, would probably be dying. Probably the scariest thing. Some of you guys have had near-life, near-death experiences. There's probably fewer things that, that, are, that are scarier than that. And, and so what the author of Hebrews just clarified for us in chapter 2, 14 to 15, is if verse 14 doesn't take place if John 1 14 doesn't take place he can't destroy the one that holds the power of death if verse 14 doesn't take place he can't deliver us from the fear of death which enslaves us and furthermore you go to Hebrews chapter 2 17 to 18 it says therefore or for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that is human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. It's a big word, but we're not intimidated by big words at LCC. Propitiation. He, he had to make propitiation, yeah. That is literally, he takes the wrath of God, he absorbs God's wrath, and then turns it to favor. That's what propitiation is. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If verse 14 doesn't take place in chapter 1 of John's gospel, he can't be a merciful high priest to us. If verse 14 doesn't take place, he can't be the propitiation for our sins. If verse 14 doesn't take place, he can't help us when we're tempted. When we're tempted to do married things with people we're not married to. He can't help us when we're tempted to lie. He can't help us when we're tempted by greed or by gluttony or by pride or anything else if verse 14 doesn't take place. If he doesn't come, none of us have a chance. And none of us make it. And at the end of verse 14, it states that we 
have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what... What's up with this seeing language? What's this seeing language all about? See that? So yeah, my short answer is, in Jesus we see God. So when he says full of grace and truth here in verse 14, understand that the word full, I'm going to go really slow. The, the word full is modifying the word glory. The glory of Jesus is full of grace toward us. That's really good news. And there are two key words at the end of verse 14, and that is grace and truth. So if you like jotting stuff down in your Bible, just circle grace and truth, because those are the two key words at the end of verse 14. And this is really good news. Really good news that I think oftentimes we often easily gloss over. I mean, think of it like this. If grace is absent, if grace gets removed, if there is no grace, we've got nothing to stand between us and the wrath of God. So when he shows up in verse 14 to dwell among us, if there's no grace here, we're toast. I mean, you're going to be smoked like a cheap cigar. That type of toast. You're you're goners, right? Because that's what grace does. But it's not just grace here. Because in maintaining the other key word, the truthfulness of God, he, he must maintain his justice. And because we're all guilty, we will receive the just punishment for our sins means we're going to hell forever. That's why this is good news. God is so full of grace towards us. He's so full of grace toward the person who just last night and this morning was watching porn on his computer. He's so full of grace toward the girls who are doing merry stuff with guys they're not married to. He's so full of grace toward the proud and the selfish. But notice, lest we make this story all about grace and ignore the second key word at the end of verse 14, and that is truth. It's grace and truth. In other words, he doesn't just deliver grace, he also does so while maintaining the truthfulness of himself. That is, he doesn't compromise his standard through his graciousness. Or as Paul would say, yes, 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 he's gracious. And it's amazing, amazing grace. But that doesn't mean we can just keep sinning. Oh, by no means. And so we praise God this Palm Sunday for the kindness that he has shown to us by by entering into creation, by coming on this rescue mission for us, by living the life we could not live in pain. The price we cannot afford to pay. And dying that death, we could never die. And so, we come to verse 15, and it says, John, he's speaking about John the Baptist right now, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was of he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And John the Baptist, of course, had died long before John the Evangelist wrote this gospel. But to grasp the full weight of these verses, you've got to understand this statement in light of 
really this kind of cult following of John the Baptist that had still been in existence. A cult following that we are, uh, learn about in Acts chapter 19. And we'll throw it up on the screen. Paul has a conversation with some of John the Baptist's followers. And it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus there. He found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. It's new to us. And he said, well, then into what then were you baptized? They said, well, into John's baptism. Paul said, well, John, that's John the Baptist, he baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. John's point is John the Baptist, by his own testimony, by his own testimony, understood that he was inferior to Christ. And think of it from the Baptist's perspective. Jesus is John the Baptist's little cousin, right? And in effect, he might say, listen, yeah, so I'm technically a little older, but then again, since my little cousin Jesus has existed from, I don't know, since eternity, I guess, I guess yeah, he, I guess he would beat me there, right? And he's certainly more preeminent than me. So he, he, he came before me, he's more preeminent. I think of one word to describe this verse, and it's the word humility. And for many people today, this is their issue. For some of you today, this is your issue. You don't want to bow the knee. They're like, Jesus, he's okay. Just so long as he doesn't tell me what to do. The point of verse 15 is to showcase the preeminence of Christ. The point of verse 15 is to illustrate the humility of the Baptist. The point of verse 15, to be clear, is that you can't see Jesus in a true verse 14 way, unless you humble yourselves and bow the knee to him, because you can't make up your own version of Jesus. He won't let you. And so, verse 16, he writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What John is saying is that receiving grace is the ultimate reason why you can see the glory of God. Receiving grace is the reason you can see Jesus in a saving way. And here's why. Remember verse 14? Remember verse 14? Let me put verse 14 back on the screen for just a second. That was interesting, wasn't it? Verse 14 says, we have seen his glory, right? You got to track with me. I'm gonna, uh, this is, we're going to go crazy. Just, just hold your attention right now. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. And that, that glory was full of grace and truth. And then he says here in verse 16, we've received that grace. In other words, we have seen his glory full of grace in verse 14 because we've all received grace here in verse 16. That's the connection. You can see him, verse 14, because you've received the grace here in verse 16. Furthermore, the scene of verse 14, that's not a natural scene. It's not like looking or seeing me turn around and looking and seeing anyone else for that matter. But rather, when we receive this verse 16 grace, it causes our spiritual eyes to be open. So that when you look at Jesus, 
He's no longer boring or lame anymore. He's no longer the Sunday school lesson that you've heard all your life. He's something much more. When we receive the verse 16 grace, it causes our spiritual eyes to be open, and through faith, we can see Jesus. And Jesus explains these verses in a very similar way to Martha. Remember Martha in John chapter 11, verse 40? Remember her? Here's what Jesus said to her just before he raises her brother Lazarus from the dead. Did I not tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And remember when Jesus did this? When he raised her brother from the dead? A lot of people saw him do that. A lot of people saw him do that. But only some saw the glory of God when he did it. Like Martha. And that is a work of grace. That's what verse 16 is talking about. And so the understanding of verse 14 and 16 is like this. Receiving, saving grace enables us to see with our spiritual eyes things that our ordinary eyes cannot see. That's that's, that's it. And the reason we can't see such things is because we are blind. That's our natural condition from birth. Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And this blindness, it cannot be remedied by anyone other than God. Therefore, God takes all the credit for giving the grace that opens our blind eyes that we might see Jesus for who he really is. That's the issue. For my dad, who's not a Christian, that's, that's the issue for some of your friends or family members who are not Christians. And so he continues in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so here's what he's going to do in verse 17. John's going to swing this entire discourse to the most famous Old Testament figure of all time, Moses. And if you remember your Old Testament, it was Moses who had a very close relationship with God. So close, in fact, that Exodus 33:11 reminds us the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Face to face, that's how God used to talk to him, as a man speaks to his friend. And of course, it was Moses who asked God in Exodus 33, 18, please, God, show me your glory. In fact, we're going to read that entire text. Exodus 33, 18 to 23, it should be on the screen behind me. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. This is why he mentions Moses. 
case it seems kind of random to bring him a new character. This is why. Because if there was anybody who it could be said had seen the glory of God in a verse 14 sort of way, it was Moses. And that's why I actually, what I did is I circled seen in verse 14, and then I drew a beeline right down to Moses in verse 17. Because there's a connection. Anybody, you say, anybody, you guys know anybody who's seen God face to face? That guy Moses. Yeah, that's right. That's why he brings him up here. It's not a random placement in verse 17. Moses was the recipient of God's grace in getting to see with his own eyes the glory of God. So what John is saying is that same special grace that Moses got to receive from God in Exodus 33, that same special grace he got to receive, Jesus is performing. Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus is a superior, not just to the Baptist, but to Moses. And then he quickly, mo- he quickly notes that Moses delivered the law. And John isn't suggesting somehow that the law is irrelevant, like it doesn't matter anymore. That's not what he's suggesting. But rather, the law was sort of like a witness or a precursor to something better. Something better. That's what Hebrews 10.1 tells us. In Hebrews 10.1 It calls the law a shadow of good things that's to come. That's what Hebrews says. The law is a shadow of good things that are to come. And and the good thing finds its culmination in the person of Jesus. The the law is a shadow. So you think about shadows for a second. Uh, Shadows are, are certainly helpful things. And the way they are helpful, think about a shadow is by pointing us toward reality. That's what shadows do. They they draw our attention toward things. Both Moses and the law that he delivered were about drawing our attention toward something better. Something better. And that is Christ. And this is typically where sometimes people get a little confused because they're like, okay, Walk me through this. If Jesus hasn't come, how would people pre-Jesus get saved? You ever asked that question? Because John seems to be saying that the law was not an instrument of grace. The law was like a shadow. It just pointed people toward Jesus. Like, hey, that way. That's a great question. How would people pre-Jesus get saved? And so what actually is happening Pre-Jesus is that God is granting grace and forgiveness to repentant sinners who violated the law based on what Christ would do on the cross. In short, when people ask that question, they're like, how would they get saved? Same way. By faith. And so properly understood, the the law of Moses serves us. It, It serves us by showing us how bad we are. And how much we just fall short and how much we just missed the mark and how like glorious and high God's standards are and we just can't live up to that. The law, the law is our teacher who explains that we cannot on our own merit make it. It's like a shadow that points us towards Jesus. It shows us how much we need Jesus. That's why the law is good. When I taught evangelism at LCA back in 2012, 2013, 
one of the, the things that people would ask me is, when I'm sharing my faith or witnessing, what's, what, what can I expect? I know, I know anything could happen in those conversations. You know, you meet somebody on the street, but what, what can I expect? And I would say, uh, my experience, 90% of the time, someone's going to say, they're going to go to heaven because they're a good person. That's what I'm going to say. 90% of the time, when you're witnessing somebody, that's going to be their justification, to borrow some theologically rich terms, for going to heaven. And that's why I love the law. So if you listen to guys like Friel or Comfort, um, that's the first thing they point out. You, you, you probably think you're a good person based on your own standard, right? Based on your own idea of what right looks like. The problem is God's standard is just, it's incredibly higher than your standard. And for that reason, you, you're just going to fall short and violate the law and break the law and miss the mark. The law is meant to point us like a shadow toward Jesus, right? You missed the mark. You dropped the ball. Like, you're not going to make it based on your own goodness. But here's the good news, right? Insert gospel. Insert life, death, burial, resurrection, hope. That's what the law does. But unfortunately, far too many people hear these stories about Jesus, and they just shrug them away. They even come and sit in services like the one that you're sitting in right now. And the words they're hearing, they just fade in front of them. Because let's be real, guys. You've got more important things going on than to have to process and think about all this spiritual stuff. Not to mention, I'm sure many of you have heard it before. But here's the thing about what John has been saying so far. And that is, John isn't just trying to teach us a bunch of facts and information about grace and truth. John isn't just trying to deliver another boring adult Sunday school lesson that really would be better if there were some crayons and something to color. He he wants you to receive it. He wants you to take hold of it. He wants you to grab onto it. He wants you to experience it. Because the truth is, if you fail to experience Christ this way, if you fail to see Christ the way Martha did the day her brother was raised from the dead, if you fail to take hold of the grace that is offered, there will be nothing to stand between you and the wrath of God when you meet him face to face. Despite your crying and begging and pleading for your life, he'll simply say, away from me, I never knew you. So the stakes are high. In case you thought this was another boring Sunday school lesson. Well, verse 18. John continues. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You can almost feel the sort of reverberations right now. The reverberations of Moses in 18. I mean, we already discussed that. If anyone kind of sort of saw God, it was Moses. But verse 18 presents a bit of a problem. You see the problem? If no one has ever seen God, if no one's ever seen him, how can you possibly know God? And how can you know what God's will is? And how can you know what God wants you to do or anything else as it relates to Him? At which point, this is 
usually where the cultural relativism starts attempting to break down the doors of the church. And it's usually here where the pastor will tell you how much God loves you. Because, I mean, who's going to take any issue with hearing he loves you? No one's going to take issue with hearing that someone loves them. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty lovable, right? And then, and then that pastor might follow it up with, and God, say, God says that you were made for him and by him. All right, I like the way this is going, right? Because now I've totally forgotten about verse 18. Man, that's in my rear view mirror, and we're just cruising, good vibes, hot summer nights. I like this. And then before you know it, someone sends you a four-minute clip from an Acts 29 pastor, and now you're hearing it like I was just last night. Hearing how a pastor said, and let me get this right, and I quote, Christians can and must lean into the rights of those who identify as transgender. So if that means advocating for a better social support system, if that means creating space for gender-inclusive bathrooms and policies that acknowledge a person's humanity and the complex questions dealing with sports and all the other struggles that the trans community faces, then we as Christians should be on the front lines offering love and support. End quote. That was from an Acts 29 pastor. And if you had asked me seven years ago, I would have recommended any church that was a part of the Acts 29 network without reservation. So now, you see... The answer to this question of knowing God, it's just gotten a whole lot more important. Because if you don't figure out who God is, you can make him say whatever you want him to say, even if what you want him to say contradicts what he actually says. And let me be really clear about this. You better figure out who he is. Because if you don't figure out who he is, Someone in some position of authority is going to try to convince you of a version of God that doesn't exist. And for that reason, I never want you to believe anything I say because I say it. Ever. I want you to believe it because I show you in the Word. So let's revisit this topic in verse 18 about knowing God. How do we know Him if you can't see them. And I'm so thankful Jesus provides the answer for us in John 14, 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, when people say things like, well, I don't think God would do that. Mm-mm, no way, he wouldn't, he wouldn't act like that. Or I don't, think, I don't think God would have a problem with that. The truth is, none of that matters because there is only one person who is qualified to make such claims, and his name is Jesus. Oh, I'm thankful for this rich text from John's Gospel. I'm so thankful that we can know him. And that if you've seen Jesus, even if you've seen Jesus through the pages of this book, then you've seen his Father. And if you see Jesus in a saving way, it's because you are recipients of the grace of God. And that's a miracle. That's a miracle. 
The type of miracle when a plane crashes and someone falls and survives a 30,000-foot fall. You hear about once in a blue moon. You're like, what are the odds of that? They're, They're insurmountable. So is that if you see Jesus that way. When you look at Jesus, if he is more beautiful and more satisfying and more glorious than anything else, and you've gone beyond, yeah, yeah, I know that story before. I heard that somewhere in Sunday school, to, No, no, I see him now. A miracle has taken place in your life. The kind that is incalculable. The kind that is impossible, apart from being recipients of his grace. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. Jesus, we love you. I pray, God, that you would help us to know you more deeply and more richly. I thank you, Lord, that you are better, superior, preeminent than the law, than Moses, than the Baptist. And Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to what is true. Yes, Lord, may we emphasize grace when it's needed. But grace apart from truth, grace apart from maintaining the truthfulness of your word is just making up our own version of who you are. And I pray that we would be rooted deeply in your word, especially when it comes to some of the issues and challenges that we're facing that I I would never have thought seven years ago that we'd be facing. We need your help, Lord. Guide us and direct us. We pray this in your name, amen.